Today, digital privacy is on everyone's mind. We know that every time we search, use an app, make an online purchase, or even go to the doctor, more and more information is being collected on us. The degree to which we can do anything about it or even care in this digital age is an open question. However, what if we ourselves could access and use this information, not to make us better consumers, but to actually make us happier? If understanding our digital footprint made us better able to understand ourselves, would this have value? Can all of the aggregated information about us create a kind of digital psychoanalysis that we can use to improve our lives? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, John Havens. He's a contributing writer for Mashable, The Guardian, and The Huffington Post. He's a former executive vice president for a top 10 global public relations firm, and he's the author of the new book, Hacking Happiness while your personal data counts, and how tracking it can change the world. John Havens, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Great to have you here. Talk first about how this idea began to emerge for you, the idea that there is all this data about us, and certainly there is much debate going on about collecting that data and who has it and who should have it. But the idea of, of us having access to our own data and the value in that. In terms of us having our own, the value of our own data, it really starts with my dad. My father was a psychiatrist for about 40 years. And what I realized um, when he passed away about three years ago, when I was going through, you know, a time of grief, and also um, I'm 45, so my midlife crisis came at the same time, which is always fun, um, <laughs> was that I wanted to take a measure of my own life. And I meant it both metaphorically but literally. My work as a geek, as a, as a lover of technology, I knew that I could track my online behavior, <clears throat> and I wanted to get a sense of what my digital identity sort of meant to the world. And it became troubling. This is two or three years ago before a lot of the NSA and other concerns came up. And outside of just um, concerns about being spied on, I, I realized, well, all this data, although we're used to sort of giving a little bit here and there aggregated, this forms a portrait of our identity. And if we have a chance to control or manage or even be aware of that data, we can use it to increase our well-being. So that's how the whole journey began. To what extent is aggregating that data really giving us a clear portrait of our emotional state? It may tell us what we bought and where we went and how we reacted to certain things, but is it giving us a true picture of who we are? Well, right now, an aggregated picture of who we are depends on how you search the data. But I talk a lot in the book about apps. That's why the APP and the title, Hacking Happiness, there's the parentheses APP in the title. There are now this whole field called quantified self, which is the use of not just digital apps, but this idea of studying our behavior. And so, for instance, you can keep a, 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 an emotional journal and uh, a journal for, for years since time began. You know, you write down your emotions for the day. So in one sense, you're already tracking your moods and you start to come up with insights. When I talk to this person, they make me sad. <laughs> but now it's just a lot more uh, advanced where you can wear something like a Fitbit that measures with timestamp data and GPS or location data how far you've run, what your weight was. You can do this now with sleep. You can start to measure sentiment when you send emails. What is the tone, your, the emotional tone of the email that you're sending and how is the sender receiving it? So there's a myriad of new technologies that give us insights into our emotions to the point where you can actually, in one sense, quantify your emotional life. Does it disconnect us from our emotion in some way? For example, think about how would your father look at something like this? 
Well, my dad was, it's a great question. My dad, one thing I talk about in the book, he asked every one of his patients, the first question was, to every one of his patients over 40 years, he said, do you watch the 11 o'clock news? And they said, yes. He said, stop watching the 11 o'clock news. And uh, his point there, which I love so much is, look, it's not that the 11 o'clock news is evil per se, but it's slanted in the U.S. with the whole it bleeds, it leads kind of mentality. And it is at the best time to choose to watch something that may affect your sleep and your, your health negatively. Similarly, uh, we already track our emotions right now without the use of any equipment. We just kind of track it not as well as we could. You know, we, we all, myself included, <laughs> make poor dating choices thinking this is the person for me. Or we have interactions with our loved ones where if we could kind of take a step back and have an objective party where there's data, does it mean that it's going to take some time getting used to? Yes. Does it mean that in the midst of an argument, you pull out a Fitbit and say, honey, you're making my pulse race right now. You know, we have to understand how to adopt these technologies. But I'm hoping in the work that I'm doing that it becomes a tool that's freeing and gives insights so people can have permission to know the unknown. I didn't realize that, quote, this made me upset. You know, when I go outside, I, I react to noises in a certain way. And then when I come back in, I bring that anger typically to my wife. Maybe that's the type of, of, of uh, insight that we can start to have to increase and make positive our relationships where we'll just kind of have to get used to the measurement side of things. Is there a kind of feedback loop going on here whereby to simply measure this stuff has an impact on how we react to it? Yeah, there's a lot of great research. Uh, Pew Internet did a great study on quantified self. And they had some great, I forget the exact number, so listeners should check their report. It came out about six months ago. But I think it's people that even tracked their data, it's at least 40%, said it helped change the perception of their health and how they would take better care of themselves. And there's a lot of research around the different health and exercise-oriented apps, the Fitbits, the Jawbones, et cetera, that shows it provides a, a sense of accountability, almost if you had sort of a running group or a running buddy. You can look at something and set a goal. I want to run a mile today. And you can just get the sense of, did I run a mile today? It's data that, sure, if you want to, you can condemn yourself. I didn't run my mile today, and this piece of technology is telling me. But a lot more people are saying it's actually pushing them and encouraging them to, to do more. Do you see it having any negative impact in terms of some of the self-reinforcing aspects of it? There's a lot of negative impact for, you know, technology in this type of study. And, and one thing that's important is, you know, technology in general is neither evil nor good. I always talk about, you know, you can take a stick and make a fire with it and you and I can stay warm or you could pick it up and beat me to death. You know, technology is not inherently evil or good. It's how you use it. I think the danger is using any form of technology or app to start to sort of let it dictate aspects of your life versus trying to sort of keep it at arm's length and objectively letting that data help you. So, for instance, there's the idea of active data input and passive data input. Active is when you're using an app where you might enter in the calories for something you just ate and how far you ran. Passive data collection is like GPS, or a lot of apps that will start to track your behavior so that when you choose, in the same way I mentioned my dad saying don't watch the news at 11, you may want to measure your day's data like at 7 o'clock and you can see how did my running go today? How did my moods go today? How did my, you know, uh, stress go today? And that's the time you choose to analyze that data so you can kind of keep it, uh, you know, in a, in a time period that makes sense for your life to analyze. Does it prevent you from being more 
in the moment in some respects, knowing that all this data is being tracked and that you're going to spend the time at some future period analyzing the data? I think it certainly depends on the person, and I think it's something like going to the gym. I very much equate going to the gym. You know, no one sort of argues with the idea that if you eat bad foods and never exercise, you may get heavier or, or be out of shape. Now, we can all feel bad about that. I'm overweight. I would rather, you know, be more fit. And I'm using some of these tools, and they've been very helpful. Um, but, but the idea of, of making that change and observing your data, we all get on the scales first before we want to lose weight. It's simply a way to say, here's where I am now. And I think in terms of being in the moment, yeah, you know, when you start using these tools, what I found with my experience and most people is you kind of have to get used to for a week or so being aware that you're wearing some kind of wearable device or a Fitbit. And, you know, you have the first day where it's just kind of fun if you're a geek like me to sort of track this stuff and you get to see the sort of invisible be made visible. And then there also becomes kind of a, you know, I have to enter in the data again type of thing. But I equate it very much like to the gym. When you start to go to the gym like the third or fourth time in the course of a couple of weeks, at least for me, I feel like that sort of charge of I'm back, I'm back in my gym mode. Uh, a lot of people find the same thing when they track themselves, and so they're able to be in the moment with their emotions and stuff, even if they're already uh, tracking themselves. Talk about the examples you, you write about and have seen where it, this does produce greater happiness, both for individuals and even within the context of groups and communities. Sure. Well, one of the most famous examples, the person who a lot of people call the father of positive psychology, uh, he created, um, and his name, uh, it's Martin, it'll come to me, it's, it's slipping me for the moment, um, oh, Martin Seligman, there it is. Um, he, he's famous for creating this exercise uh, on gratitude. And what he did is he took a number of clinically depressed patients, so not just kind of people who are dealing with their moods in an average standpoint, but they were clinically depressed. And over a longitudinal study, I think it was at least six months, he had all these patients with pen and paper simply write three things they were grateful for each day. And what they found is the rates of the depression and other aspects, the you know, deleterious effects of the depression, began to wane when that was the one thing that had changed, was simply having these people write down and reflect on what they were grateful for. And what this is, is this whole idea of positive psychology. Martin Seligman is, like I said, the father of positive psychology. And for about the past 15 years, it's a science that complements traditional psychoanalysis. And I think my dad totally would have embraced it with that news comment alone, in the sense that once pain is sort of removed from us through traditional therapy, we can also pour in positive affect. And when you do something like practice gratitude or altruism, you can actually measure through MRIs aspects of the brain, especially hormones like oxytocin and, and dopamine, that increase when you do these things. And these are literally called like the happiness hormones. So by doing things like practicing gratitude, almost like going to the gym, you exercise these tools or these behaviors, and they can increase your intrinsic well-being over time. It really is the second part of the equation, because we've been talking a lot about measuring and what that all means. But the only relevance of it is if you're proactive in response to the information that you get. Proactivity is the goal. Yeah, I mentioned quantified self before, <clears throat> and a lot of people think that has to do just with the technology of it. Quantified self is actually a global movement that uh, most people credit to a guy named Gary Wolf from Wired Magazine fame. And people around the world have been using either pen or paper, photographs, 
um, or, or electronic apps or technologies to measure their behavior in a sense to, to study it, hopefully without judging it. And a lot of data scientists have this skill, and it's a learned skill. It's, it's tough to observe yourself objectively and study patterns in your life where you have an objective to start, but you're not necessarily saying this will happen with a hypothesis. And then the logic then is you are trying to optimize aspects of your life or well-being. You can optimize your time. You can optimize your health. So, well, some people certainly can see it as being kind of a dispassionate study of your life. A lot of other people, myself included, I say, look, if you want your life to count, you should take account of your life, study it, and then, you know, for a time, get used to the tools, optimize areas where you can, and use it as a way to discover all this glorious data about yourself you may not have known before. Talk about the process of gathering the data. That's not quite as simple as it seems sometimes. You know, gathering, we're in a time where gathering data is, uh, you know, this whole term of big data is uh, one that you hear a lot. And a lot of my friends who are in the space point out that big data is essentially a great marketing term. Um, because now talking about big data, you know, sort of how do we use big data is the equivalent, quite literally, of saying, how do we use the Internet? There is so much data, you know, gigabytes or gigabytes or whatever it is being collected about us, and it's not just online, it's not just in our mobile phones, it's in this what's called the Internet of Things, which means sensors around us. So RFID tags or the sensors when you drive through your, your car on the highway to get money taken from an easy pass. We have millions almost of points of data for each of us gathered throughout the day. And what's kind of crazy right now is all the different people who are collecting it and why, government entities, corporate entities, private entities, and a lot of why I talk about in the book, the, the management of your personal data, and the subtitle is, if people can manage or control their own data, then they can decide how or whether they'd want to measure it and optimize their lives according to their data. Does this work in the context of groups and communities if you aggregate data from multiple numbers of people? It does. And the third part of the book, I talk about what's called well-being indexes or indices. And most people have probably heard by now of Bhutan, the country of Bhutan that created something called their gross national happiness metric. And what this is is sort of a complement or an extension of gross domestic product where GDP primarily focuses on and measures the metrics of increase of uh, wealth or goods. And back in the 40s after the Second World War, that sort of philosophy, because it's a philosophy as much as a science in terms of economics in general, the idea was that growth was of paramount importance, so that value was mainly about growth, because it was a time when the world was really decimated and, and lay in ruins. Um, but the reason that gross national happiness came about, it was inspired by a speech that Robert Kennedy gave in 1968, where he talked about all the things that GDP doesn't measure. Things like the quality of education, the quality of art, the environment. And these are simply things where Bhutan said, well, look, we have to measure sort of 10 to 12 larger metrics of a citizen's well-being versus just the money they make or just the goods they produce, or we won't know how to govern effectively. So now that idea has been taken on by Prime Minister David Cameron in the UK. It's been adopted in China, Brazil, Vermont in the States. Santa Monica is now building their own well-being index. And these all mean that governments are trying to measure all these aspects of their citizens to provide a framework where they can flourish. It doesn't mean they're telling them how to be happy. It means they're trying to be more responsible to measure 
all these different aspects of people's lives. So to your point, all of their aggregate data is going to start to be tabulated and the government will be held responsible to making sure their citizens can be happier. And how are people reacting to that? Is it the same fear about government having access to information or having too much control, too much power? I think there's always going to be a concern about government, you know, surveillance. And, you know, London, for instance, I forget how many cameras they have in central London, but it's the most surveilled capital of any place in the world. And this is also why I talk a lot in the book about managing or trying to protect your data simply as a way of sort of knowing how you can manage your identity when essentially we start to, you know, put things over our eyes where we may see the digital or virtual world more than we see the, quote, literal world. Um, but I think what my hope is, is these metrics that governments are now uh, are putting out there, there's also a, an inherent transparency. You know, if they're saying we want to measure these 10 aspects or 12 aspects of a citizen's lives, um, and we, we need to study these things so we can help you better, then the sort of, you know, reverse contract is that citizens say, well, if I give you this aggregated data and it's uh, anonymized to whatever you know, level you can, that's very hard to do, but... The point is, is then, well, hey, government, you're going to be responsible if we're not doing well. And so in that sense, like also the UK um, has done some great work. They put a lot of their data online in the form of Excel spreadsheets. So it's a great level of transparency where if a government wants to take the risk to say, hey, we want to study you in this way using subjective data from surveys and also quantitative data, you know, census data, et cetera, um, and put it up online, that provides citizens a way to say, well, hey, thanks for letting me see that data as compared to America, like where data brokers like Axiom don't even give you full access to your data. And secondly, it means they're going to be able to hold the government more accountable when certain things aren't being met. What is the danger of this adding to simply the amount of information that's out there about us, the amount of information that's being collected, and of course, all the fear that it gets into the wrong hands? Well, the tough thing is the amount of information increasing about us exponentially, it's not going to end. Um, It's it's sort of, it's inevitable. And that's, again, in the book, why I talk so much about using things like personal data banks or data clouds, which are kind of like drop boxes on steroids for our own data. But uh, the, the number of ways that we're being tracked are increasing exponentially daily. And the danger for me is that, A, people aren't fully aware of not just the fact that they're being tracked, but how deeply they're being tracked. B, that they aren't being provided a choice to decide how or where they might like to be tracked. C, they may not understand the options like those data banks. And, and D, if I can make a list of four versus three, um, that if we're at this time where we can still maybe make a change to not the fact that all the data is being collected, but the ethics and, and uh, cultural ramifications of, of how it is being collected, um, if we just sort of ignore it for the next two or three years, we may have sort of a, an end game where we can't take steps back to having ways to manage the data that people can, where they can choose how they want to use it. And have you been using these methods to make yourself happier? I have, um, especially the positive psychology side of things. Uh, gratitude is incredibly powerful, especially for me in combating like jealousy. You know, when you write a book and you put a book out, especially that you pour your heart into, like I did with this. It's easy. I have a lot of friends who are New York Times bestselling authors, you know, and you read in Facebook and there's all this research about, you know, if you have over 150 friends in Facebook, your depression can go up because you're comparing yourself to the Joneses. And sometimes I get caught up in, you know, sort of the normal human stuff we all do, which is, oh, his book is doing so well and mine is this. And, 
And then I reflect on how blessed I am to have the wife I have, the kids that I have. I eat every day, you know, all that type of stuff. And really taking that time in sort of a meditative standpoint, um, it's a gift when you actually start to practice these tools. Same with altruism. There's so much research showing that when you are altruistic, a lot of the benefit is, in, is to the giver in the sense that your sense of self-esteem goes up. And in one sense, it's a free therapeutic tool to help others. We can go have a conversation about motivation and all that, but the point is, is that when you're kind to someone else, you have a feeling of why you connect to the world. And again, the research shows that your happiness goes up. So I've been practicing those because I'm a big techie. I love the electronic side of things, but putting the phone away, that's the stuff that I need to practice more and I see great benefits from. John Havens, the book is Hacking Happiness, Why Your Personal Data Counts and How Tracking It Can Change the World. John, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for a great interview. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 